you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 5. That is where we will find ourselves this morning. Where did October go? <laughs> and isn't it supposed to be like October 20th or something right now? And wow, wow. Um, we have, this is week nine of our The Curtain Goes Up series as we walk through the Gospel of John. And John is the Gospel of Belief. John wants us to come to believe in Jesus Christ. He wants to show us who Christ is and why it matters that we believe. So the whole thesis of the gospel is found in John chapter 20, verse 31. It says that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All the things that John is going to pin for us, all these scenes that we're going to see the curtain go up on, and we're going to get to see the interaction of Jesus and, and his followers and the way that those interactions take place, is all so that it will help us understand who he is, what he's done, and what he is doing. So John doesn't just say, hey, you need to believe the end. John actually takes us through these narratives, these stories that help us see the people that Christ encountered, how they travel from skepticism or unbelief to belief, which somewhere along the way, we're going to find ourselves in one of those places. And he shows us the barriers that commonly exist and how they systematically or systemically can come down in our lives. And so these things, like I said, as we started this series, these are things that would have been acted out on stage as they are these scenes that, that give us little glimpses to connect with of who Jesus is. So John is going to later say in John 14 that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to God the Father except through him, which is a bold and audacious statement. And he says it unapologetically that, uh, that the way of salvation is in Christ and Christ alone, which, by the way, is an explosive and potentially argumentative declaration. I mean, just go out into the public square and begin saying that Jesus is the only way. You will find yourself in the middle of a storm. Because what people hear when you say that, it's, though it's not what is being said, is that, oh, you think your belief system is superior to mine. Well, actually, it has nothing to do with a belief system being superior. It has everything to do with identity, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Everybody else that taught some sort of belief system, taught a philosophy or a worldview, they're a human teaching a set of human beliefs. Jesus claims that he is God in the flesh, and he is prescribing a, excuse me, a prescription for what has gone wrong with humanity and the way to come back that it is only possible through Christ. He says, I've come to bridge the gap between broken humanity and a holy God. In other words, Jesus says that he's the door. He's the way that we have to enter to get back to God, that, that Jesus came to live the life that you and I attempted to live, but we weren't very successful in living it successfully because we're broken. And our best days, he says, are really filthy rags, but yet he clothes us in righteousness. And that is why he is 
the way. So by the time we get to chapter 5, where we're going to be today, there's going to be this sense of brewing hostility that is going to begin building with intensity. Jesus, in chapter 5, shows an incredible amount of compassion to a particular man who is disabled, and yet he picks a fight with the religious establishment all at the same time. I mean, don't you love that about Jesus? He knows how to show compassion to you at the same time he's picking a fight. He is much more than the Mr. Rogers of the first century. Because Jesus comes and he picks a fight with the Jewish establishment, all the while giving out compassion and grace. Ultimately, the parable that we looked at last week and the one we're going to look at today are parables of salvation. It's a real-life parable that I believe we will probably find ourselves in. So let's jump into John 5.1 this morning. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five colored colonnades, covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, the Bethesda, as we get it, or Bethzetha, it literally means house of mercy or house of grace. And, and it has these covered colonnades, um, you know, like a pergola that would provide some shade for those that were, were in the area, particularly those that were hanging out. Uh, it, there's a, a verse 4 in some translations, though it's not in every translation, that uh, there was a, a kind of a, a folk legend that an angel would stir the water, and when the angel stirred the water, whoever got in first um, would be healed of whatever. Uh, there, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of stuff to to you know fully jump in on that. And somebody put the the, the A stamp that that's kind of exactly uh, the way it happened. But um, one of the things that we might draw our attention to in these first three verses is is that John uses the word is in a declarative statement. He says, there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, and there's a pool there. Where? And he's writing, he's writing somewhere, you know, 85 to 90-ish, you know, 60 years after Jesus is on the scene. And he is saying, hey, um, you know, Jerusalem was destroyed in, in AD 70, but he's saying, you know, you you know, that there was the sheep gate and there were all these little mikvah pools, these little baptism pools that were all over Jerusalem. And there was one that was by the sheep gate. And so he's making a declaration historically of something they would have connected with. He's not going, hey, you know, I heard a story that there, he's saying, listen, this is the way it was. He, he, is, he is writing in an authoritative way because he says, you know, because many of you walk by that or you've, you, you know where it is. You know where it happened. And so he's showing history. And there are all these people with ailments who've gathered around the pool, and the pool would bubble up, probably was, was built around some spring that would, uh, would at times bubble up, and, and maybe it could have been some type of hot spring. And 
Possibly there was people that were healed there by the water. Uh, more than likely, it was probably therapeutic for their bodies because who doesn't like to get into a good hot tub of water when you're, when you're aching? So Jesus walks up to this pool and there's all kinds of hurting people with all these physical ailments that are lying around the pool. And he picks out one guy. John 5, 5 says it this way, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Now, kind of like last week, you know, with the father who came to say, hey, my my son's dying. I need you to come back to Capernaum with me. I need you to come do something. And, and Jesus looks at the father, but he also looks at all the people that are around the disciples and everyone and says, you know, unless you, unless you people see some kind of miraculous sign, you, you won't believe you're hard headed. Well, what's the deal? We talked about contingent faith last week, how we, we make these contingencies of us coming to God. Well, if, if I could see this, or if this would happen, or It's an odd question because I think we all know that Jesus knows the answer. But, you know, sometimes you ask questions that you, you know the person knows the answer, but you want them to think through it. Like when your child keeps doing the same thing, like picking a fight or causing the other people in the house to, to lose their mind with them. And you look at them and you go, why do you do that? Now, you know that they know why they do that. But you want them to go, why do I do that? Which Parker never does that. Not that I mentioned Parker's name at all. <laughs> Jesus walks up to him and, you know, we, we, we understand that Jesus can see his heart and he says, hey, do, do you want to be healed? Now, this guy has no clue who Jesus is. In fact, it seems like he, he is so oblivious. And Jesus comes up and says, hey, man, You want me to fix this for you? Do, 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 do you want to be healed? Um, it's, it's this same question, the, the parable of salvation, and Jesus is searching for us long before we're looking for him because this guy doesn't know who Jesus is, but, but God is always looking for us. Now notice the response that the guy gives him. It's kind of a weird response, John 5, 7. Uh, you know, it's... I would think that's a yes or no question. You, you, you track them with me? Hey, do you want to be healed? Do you want what? Yes or no? Well, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down in front of me or before me. Now, he doesn't answer the question that Jesus asked. I mean, it seems pretty simple, yes or no. Do you want to be healed? What he does is he does, and I know this is going to sound like, man, you don't have any compassion. It almost sounds a little bit like a pity party for himself. He says, hey, look, nobody will carry me down and put me into the pool every time the water bubbles up. And I try to get in and somebody just butts in front of me or they, they're faster than me. They're whatever. It's just kind of a strange thing. Now, I, I found this thing that has just rattled me all week. Listen to these words. 38 years is a long time to sit on your mat. 
Every day is the same. Waiting, watching, hoping. Not much changes when you sit on a mat, the same mat in the same place for 38 years. Sitting on this mat has become a way of life for this man. His life is stagnant. He's unable to see that the deep well of life is within him. He's convinced that life will bubble up outside of him over there in that magic pool of water. So he sits on his mat waiting, watching, and hoping that things will change. Now, there was a belief that this pool of water called Bethsetha was healing and that it would change one's life. It was said that every now and then an angel would stir the water and the water would begin to bubble. And the first one in the water would be healed. The man in today's gospel won't get up off his mat until he sees the first bubbles. He's living in, quote, as soon as, end quote, life. As soon as the water bubbles, I will get up off my mat. As soon as I get to the water, my life will be better. As soon as I get into the water, my problems will be fixed. The pool of Bethsetha is an illusion, much like control. It convinces us that our life is nothing more than our circumstances. It deceives us into believing that life is to be found outside ourselves. It tricks us into living in as soon as life. Most of us know what that is like. We say to ourselves, or maybe even out loud to another, as soon as this or that happens, everything will be better. I'll be happy. My problems will go away. I'll be satisfied. All will be well as soon as. The pool of Bethsetha has a strong attraction for us. Children often say, as soon as I get big, as soon as I grow up, when I'm an adult, it continues throughout our life as soon as. As soon as I graduate, get a job, get a better job. As soon as I get married or get out of this relationship, I have more time, more money, a better house. As soon as he changes the way he acts, as soon as she apologizes, I feel better or through the time in my life, as soon as they do what I want. As soon as I get a vacation, I retire, I move to the mountains. As soon as I get over this grief and no longer feel sad, and what we've heard us say this and we're going to keep saying it's grief is a lifetime experience. You don't get over grief. You just keep grieving. It changes. As soon as I lose 10 pounds, as soon as I get in shape, as soon as. We can fill in the blank with most anything. The problem is there will always be another pool of Bethsetha. Meanwhile, life has been put on hold. The pause button has been pushed. We sit on our mat, self-imprisoned by the circumstances of our life. The imprisonment is so great that when Jesus asks the man, do you want to be made well? The man doesn't even say, yes. Instead, he offers circumstances and excuses. I have no one to put me in the water. The water bubbles, others get there first. They take my place. They're getting my blessing. I'm not suggesting that the circumstances of our lives are irrelevant and have no effect. That's just not true. They do affect us. We are, however, more than the circumstances of our life. Life is not to be found outside our various situations or circumstances, but within them. To believe something other than this is to live constantly looking for the next pool of Bethsetha. Jesus does not help the man get into the water. 
He comes to him on his mat, the same mat and situation the man so wants to escape, and speaks words of life and resurrection. Get up off your mat. To quote quote Jesus a little bit more accurately, he says to stand up, take your mat, and walk. The man does not leave his mat behind. It goes with him. His circumstances are real. The difference is now he carries them. They no longer carry him. Jesus doesn't change our outer circumstances. He changes us. He calls us into a new way of being, seeing, acting, speaking, thinking. And when we stand and we rise to that new life, we discover the circumstances have somehow changed. That doesn't necessarily make this life easy or mean we no longer have to deal with the circumstances of our life. It makes our circumstances more manageable and we engage them from a different place and position. The pool of Bethsaida is is drained of its power over us. There is freedom where there was once imprisonment. Inertia gives way to creativity. Once stagnant waters now bubble with new life. The life Jesus offers does not happen as soon as. It happens in this place at this time in these circumstances. Are you sitting on your mat? Are you looking for a pool of Bethsaida? Stand up, take up your mat, and walk. Jesus does not even acknowledge the excuse the guy offers. He just looks at him in John 5, 8, and he says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. Right there, frustration sets in for many because you're saying, I've been begging. I've been pleading for healing for Here's what I have to see, what you have to see. Nowhere in this in this does the guy ever ask Jesus to heal him. Nowhere did Jesus say, "Okay, look, you need to muster up some more faith and then I'll do this for you." Jesus just did it. This example of God's sovereign grace in this guy's life and over this guy's life. The guy didn't even know what really hit him before Jesus came. Now, we have a tendency to think that if God is going to move in our life, if he's going to stir in our life, if he's going to bring us to a new place of belief, if God is going to heal us, he's going to have to change our circumstances. And then we start thinking, okay, if he's going to do that for me, if he's going to change my circumstances, then I better get my act together. I better muster up and bring it to the table. I better see what he will do in this instance. It's not the faith that brings the healing. It's the healing that brings the guy to faith. People say, well, if you just believe more. Well, there are other people that experience belief on the other side of the miraculous. There's not a one-size-fits-all of how this thing works. Now, look at what it says to finish up this passage in John 5, 9, after the guy is healed. So the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. I don't know about you, but I mean, that is some real compassion there. (laughs) This guy has been lying at the pool every day of his life, 38 years, he's been an invalid, and they would have known who he was And now all of a sudden he's walking up, carrying his mat, probably whistling some little tune, little ditty. It wouldn't have been country music, by the way. (laughs) 
He's fully restored. And you think they would have at least gone, whoa, that's pretty cool. You're walking. And they're like, how dare you be healed on the Sabbath? You lay back down there and pretend to be sick. <laughs> In John 5, 11, the guy looks at the, the Jewish leaders and he says, look, the, the, the man who healed me, that man said, pick up your mat and walk. I mean, he's still making excuses. He's saying, look, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. This guy did it. And he told me to take it and walk. And I haven't walked before. So I thought, hey, I might as well. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. I don't know about you, but that's just fascinating. I mean, Jesus could have walked into the pool, and and this is our heart right here. Jesus could have walked into the pool and said, all right, everybody in the pool, we're going to have a mass healing today. (laughs) But that's not what he does. He walks up to one guy, and he doesn't do this abracadabra pixie dust thing. He just says, hey, get up. Take your mat. Walk. Then he disappears into the crowd. It's as if he doesn't want to draw attention to it. Now it says, afterward, verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or sin no more or something worse may happen to you. And this man went away and told the Jews, hey, his name's Jesus. That's the guy that healed me. Now, this is not the idea of kind of a checklist of of sins. Here's the big idea of that, verse 14 and 15, is that his physical body has been healed. And now Jesus is basically saying to him, is your spirit going to be healed? Is your soul going to be made well? Do you realize what's happened to you? Do you realize the opportunity that is now before you? And that sets off that controversy that will eventually take Jesus to the cross because the Jewish leaders are not having anybody healed that they aren't in charge of or get the glory for, and definitely not someone going around telling people, you can do whatever you want on the Sabbath. I, I just want to kind of give you four, four applications this morning that I need to think about. And, and maybe you might want to consider as well. I don't know. May just This may just be for me, okay? Here's the first one. Jesus often uses painful circumstances to awaken us to spiritual realities. Jesus often uses painful circumstances to awaken us to spiritual realities. One of the things I know to be true in this room right now is that represented in this room is more than a little bit of pain, more than a little bit of disappointment, more than a little bit of confusion. I mean, we do a fairly good job of hiding it, especially at church. I think we kind of, in society, are trained to do that. But if we were to pull back the curtain and we were to see everybody's collective pain just in this room, it would crush us. It would crush us. I I know right now some of you are dealing with some big stuff. 
what you brought in here with you, what's been the running commentary in the back of your mind as you've been listening to this this morning, and particularly last week, is that you're thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Some, your, your marriage is not just beginning to crumble, but you've seen the foundation literally start to fall away. And nobody really knows it except for you and your spouse, maybe, or, or the closest, most intimate friend. Some of you are sitting in the ashes of a crumbled marriage as we speak this morning. Some have a child who's off the rails or you don't know how to bring them back. Some are faced with so much difficulty in your career, you don't even know what to do. You don't even want to get up on Monday morning. Some have have had someone say something to you in this past week that punched you in the soul. And it's decimated you, and you're trying to figure out, how do I recover from that? Some are dealing with depression, and you're doing it all alone. Some are dealing with addiction, the pain, the disappointment. Some of you are so bothered right now, you don't even know why there's pain. Why is there suffering in this world? And ironically, I would say that probably one of the top three most common reasons that I hear people say they struggle to come to believe and place their faith in Jesus is the issue of pain and suffering. If there was a God, why does pain and suffering exist? Why doesn't he do something about it and take it all away? I mean, that's a complex issue. I don't know that we can answer with some trite, simplistic answer. Like you, I've looked at it, I've studied it, I've tried to reason with it. I've sat under lectures, I've taken theology courses. I've, but I think maybe the one thing that, that does give me a little bit of insight, and I think that some of you will resonate I'm not a mother because I'm a male, but I'm a father. And becoming a father is really, I think, what has helped me kind of get some sense of this. And and, um, here's the reality. There's nothing I can do to insulate my kids from pain and suffering. You can put all the helmets and elbow pads on them that you want to put. You can lock them away and you can hide them and you can do whatever you want to do. You can't stop them from being hurt. Every single one of my kids has at some point come home with tears in their eyes. Every single one of them have have had somebody say something to them that wounded them. Everything within me as a father wants to insulate wants to protect, wants to keep them from the spirit of brokenness. But here's the thing. I also know that as a dad, if if I don't have the wisdom to know how to navigate this, if I try to keep them away from every pain, every hurt, and every bit of suffering that ever comes along, I'm going to raise a china doll that is going to be easily broken. They're going to be emotionally inept. They're going to be ill-equipped to handle the difficulty of life. And their life is going to take a steep and drastic fall because they are not going to have any standing with which to stand to handle what's going to happen in life. We can't insulate them from everything. And there are moments when we've got to have that discernment and wisdom to know how to let out just enough rope for them to experience enough where it toughens them up without making them bitter. But In that, our prayer needs to be, God, don't just give me wisdom. Would you give 
then wisdom. Because wisdom doesn't come easily. You can learn a lot by reading a book, but you can only gain wisdom by living life and failing. It comes when we navigate through pain and suffering. Here's the thing. There are times when I have to go, okay, I'm taking a step back. I know this is going to hurt. It's going to hurt right here. It grieves my heart. I, I would always tell my, my two oldest, there's hell to pay for living the life of hell. Been there, done that? And I would tell them that, and I would tell them that, and I would tell them that, and I would tell them that. And then they're knee deep in it, and they still look at you like you, you don't have a clue. And then when they come out and they realize, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, and they look at you and go, this is what you were, yeah. Why, why, didn't you, why didn't you save me from it? Because I would cripple you for the rest of your life. That's no fun as a parent, is it? It's going to hurt. When, when our kids face that kind of hurt, maybe it grieves our hot heart the most when their response to their situation and circumstances is that they begin to blame us. They accuse us. They reject us for the experience they're experiencing. What I want them to do is I want them to learn to lean into me. I want them to know that I'm there, that when my, my daughters are hurt, they can, they can trust that I'm going to do everything I can to comfort or console them, uh, that, that there's a, a shoulder and a chest with which to cry on. And when my boys face something really hard, that we're just going to walk along with them. God will not insulate you and I from everything, partly because we live in a broken world and partly to bring us to this place of spiritual maturity. And here's the thing is that you can reject God for that. that that's an option. You can do that. Th that's our freedom. That's a way. The simple thing I would ask you, though, is this. What does it get you and where does it get you because you reject him? I mean, it is a well-known and common belief of atheism that there is no God. And by the way, I'm really mad at him. <laughs> what, what does that get you? At? I mean, where does it get you? You, you could choose the other way and lean into him and say, you know what? I don't get this. I don't even begin to understand this, but it is where I am. The royal official last week, he's just like, look, dude, I, I don't know what, but my child is dying and I need you because I've heard that you can do something. But I need you to come with me. The guy today is just sitting there in the same place he's always been, and maybe he's given up the dream that his life will ever change, or he's still living for that as soon as. 
So God will use difficult circumstances. Second, Jesus will meet us right where we are in our struggle to believe. Um, both of these guys have somewhat of what I, we would call, I guess, kind of a weak faith, but you know, circumstances where they find themselves. Um, the guy in John 5 is really clueless who Jesus even is. Um, and that reveals to us once again that Jesus is searching for us long before we ever search for him, which, by the way, is good news. Uh, most commonly, uh, how people come to faith is that Basically, we could boil it into a lot of ways, but I'm just going to give you three. Um, because, see, Jesus is the logic of God. God doesn't make full sense until we get Jesus. Three primary ways that people come to place their belief or their faith or trust in Jesus Christ. The first is just kind of the weight of his person, the weight of his person. You know, you ever been in a room with somebody that's really important, maybe a high-ranking official, some, some you know, superstar, whatever? You, you, you kind of feel their presence in the room. And some people, um, you, you feel the weightiness of Jesus. It's this idea that you came to believe because you, you got into the presence of Christ and, and you felt the weight of his person. You, you felt the, the magnanimity of his, of his being. Some come to believe by the power of his word. Um, you know, John 4, the woman at the well, she goes back and says, look, this guy told me everything I've ever done, and he still loves me. And, and that's why, I mean, there is so much power in, in reading the Word, and there are people that come to faith just by opening the Word up and reading it. Not all of us. Not all of us. I was force-fed the Word my whole life, and I kept spitting it back up. And then some of us, some of us needed the experience of the work of Christ in our life. Some sort of what we might call a miraculous event. Um, have you ever noticed that you'll see through the Gospel of John, when Jesus draws a miracle, he doesn't draw attention to the miracle? The turning the water to wine, the, the healing of this guy, just as he slips off into the crowd. He, he actually tries to diminish it. He, he, he walks up to someone and he heals them. Um, and he basically he's saying, hey, uh, do me a favor, don't, don't talk about this. Just go live your life. Now, I don't know about you, but if I could heal people, I would be taking out front page ads in every major news source in the world. Um, Jesus doesn't do that. He, he doesn't talk about it. He disappears into the crowd. But basically, what is a miraculous event? It's, it's really the sovereign grace of Christ bumping you up over the barrier that you can't get over on your own. And there's a mysterious nature to the miraculous. I don't know how it works, and you don't know how it works. It's even a bit uncomfortable to talk about. Now, I've seen examples of it, and I've seen examples in my own life. But here's the dangerous thing about talking about that is that as people, we either want to be skeptical of it or we want to explain it away or we want one of those for ourselves, which builds jealousy, by the way. Well, why won't God do that for me? As soon as. Here's the thing about it. 
that example in John 5 of this healing is descriptive, not prescriptive. The difference you see is that it's not a prescription for every person's salvation. There, there are these different ways that people come to faith. I mean, people have had bad health issues, a horrible crash. I mean, all these things, and some of them will come and say, hey, you know what, that, that's where I found God. No, you didn't find God. He found you. He found you. He met you in that circumstance. Um, some of us have had that kind of experience and some haven't. Some haven't needed it, and Jesus certainly won't draw a whole bunch of attention to it because he doesn't want you to miss him or miss Christ for the miracle. Because the miracle isn't your salvation. It may be a tool to get you to salvation. Jesus is your salvation. And we get so enamored with what have you done for me lately that we can miss Christ. But if we need it, He just might, in the goodness of His grace, give you what you need but usually doesn't give you what you want. The third application. Jesus will deconstruct what you think you know. Jesus will deconstruct what you think you know. For many of us, this is not an issue of trying to come up with saving faith. It's more of an issue of asking or articulating this simple thing. What does my unbelief demand? What's it going to take for me not to get lost in my unbelief? What's it going to take for me to move from this struggle I'm having with this? Because you got people in your life that are believers, and they love God, and you see them, and they're like, oh. and it's not that their life is perfect. It's just that they've got this, this faith thing, and you're like going, I just don't even understand that. Have you ever sat down and, have you ever sat down and made a list, or have you articulated to God? God... This is where I'm struggling to believe. I would believe if I had more proof. I would believe if God would reveal himself. I would believe if this issue would get resolved. That is what your unbelief is demanding. I would just simply ask you to, to maybe make a list. Not to look for simple, tried answers. Make a list. Keep it somewhere where you're going to see it every day. God... Here's my unbelief demands. If you're really there, I'm just going to give it to you. And every day I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to see what you might do with it. I'm going to see what you might do with it. I, I think you would be surprised. It may not come in a day. It may not come in a month. It may not come in a year. But eventually, I believe Jesus will deconstruct what you think you know. The fourth application. Jesus offers you and I something we can never achieve on our own. The guy we talked about last week and the guy we're talking about this week. These are real life conversations and they're parables of salvation. That he comes to these and he says, look, you, you can't do anything on your own, it is my power at work in your life. Now, one thing that you, if you know me, you know that as long as I have breath, as long as God blesses me with the ministry of this church, I'm going to contend for on a regular daily basis is to help us understand 
that there is a great difference between the gospel, the good news, and religion. And that kind of confuses people. Because people will say, well, you know, I'm religious. Okay, what does that mean? Now, what they say is, is what they are mostly thinking is, is, hey, you know, I believe in God. I, you know, I talk to God. I do this, 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 and this. But here's what I think is the, the difference between Christian, being a Christian and being a religious person. It's going to look subtle, or you're going to look at me and go, I don't think you, I think you might be a heretic. And I probably am. A lot of people pray, they read their Bible, they've had some sort of conversion experience, they go to church, they may even tithe, they've repented of their sin. Okay? The difference between being a Christian and being a religious person is that a Christian repents of their righteousness because it's flawed and because it will crush you or will lead you into pride. Now, some of you are looking at me six ways and sideways and go, wait a minute, did you just say they repent of their righteousness? I actually did. Our attempts at righteousness may be the very thing that keeps us from Christ. The difference between a Christian and a religious person, you know you get this when you say, Lord, I not only repent of the mess that I do, but I repent of the good things I've tried to do thinking that by them I'll be saved or that you're going to give me some credit for them. That's called legalism. In Galatians 5, 4 says, those who try to justify themselves by law actually what? Fall from grace. Now, some of you are going, oh, wait, 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 I want to argue about this one. It's dhorn at goldcountrychurch.org when you send your email. He got his master's in theology from Fuller. He's ready for you. He's ready for you. You, 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 you see, we, we're always looking to be able to go, hey, God, did you see? Did you, I, I need this, God. You, you, we don't say it, but we're like, you, you owe me. I'm good. I'm mostly good. I mean, I'm better than Craig. And you probably are. But you see how that drifts in? We begin building our resume of our churchianity, of our religious accomplishments. And the world's full of religious people. And I I know it sounds like, well, he really ran. I'm just saying that this guy laying on this mat can do nothing in all the, as soon as situations that are ever going to come in his life, not one of them can he can take control of and go, okay, I've just made it to where I need to be. God, I deserve this. No, we don't. But it's grace. And God will meet us in some really awkward places. And God will do some things that are really beyond our understanding, or he won't do some things that we so desperately are clinging to. And the question we have to ask is, is he still good? Is he still good? Oh, that's a hard one, isn't it? Oh my gosh, that's a hard one. Look, this guy has no clue who Jesus is. Jesus just walks up and goes, hey, um, just looking at you, and, and you've been like this for 38 years. You, you want to be healed? 
Um, well, um, I, you know, I thought about all that, but nobody will put me in the water. No, 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 no. Do, do you want to be healed? Well, I mean, you know, the angel stirs the water and then everybody runs. And... Get up. You, you notice that the guy never says, yes. Jesus is looking into his soul. He's like, look, get up, get up. Not by your power. And there is a disconnect between that and where we live that rattles us. And we still come to church and we still do good things, hoping maybe just maybe God's going to notice I'm doing good things and he's going to meet me where I need him most. Listen, my friend, he's already there. It just may not look like you think it ought to look. Um. Most of you know we have a, a child with autism. And when John was three, John John was not verbal. Um, when, when he came into our home, um, the only thing that intelligibly you could understand were a couple cuss words he had picked up from his birth family. Everything else was mumble. And uh, he was playing. I was campus minister at Alabama, and he, he and his sisters were playing in the, one of the student rooms, and uh, he tripped and fell and hit his head right on the corner of a, of a cabinet and just cut his head right across his eyebrow, all the way across. And so we go to the, the hospital, and um, we're in the emergency room, and they, they're like, um, hey, we're going to have to put stitches in him. And I'm trying to explain, you know, I, I don't know how this is going to go. And they said, well, you're going to have to lay on top of him and hold him down. We're going to turn his head a little bit where we can get to the, to the eyebrow and put the stitches, but you're going to have to keep your face right on him and pressure so that we don't have to put him to sleep. <sighs> this kid who's nonverbal, once they put that needle in with that thread, he begins to scream, please, Daddy, no. And everything in me wanted to get up off that kid and take and run out of the room with him. God, you've got to stop this. And everything in God could be, I'd love to take you out of this, but unless you go through this, you're not going to understand where life comes from. You're not going to understand the work that I'm doing within you. And everything in us is to just let me up and let me go. No, I love you too much to let you go. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I mean. Because you have to make some decisions for your child that are impossible. And our anger towards God's not real comes from some of those situations that we project on Him, but we find ourselves in the same place, and the thing we hope more than anything is, is, oh my gosh, I hope my kids don't hate me for what I know I have to do. And the love and the graciousness of God will meet us in those places. And some of you are struggling to believe, and I get it. Oh my gosh, I get it. I didn't want anything to do with any of it because of this exact thing. And yet we got a God that loves us enough that He says, I'm going to hold you while you go through the most difficult 
thing of your life, but I also want you to look back and remember I died so that you would have that possibility. Let's pray. Father, would you meet us in this place, Lord, in our pain, in our suffering, in our struggle, in our unbelief. Lord, I pray that that even today, Lord, there may be somebody that just wants to say, I'm tired of, of trying to do it my own way. And Lord, maybe today's the day that they would just say, God, I'm here. And if you're here and you'll have me, I'm in. Lord, some are so caught up in the struggle they're in, they don't know how to breathe, much less respond. And so, Lord, I, I pray that they would have the faith and the trust to just be, be loved on and prayed over this morning, Lord, that they would wander over to the prayer room and just, and just let themselves be loved. And, Lord, wherever we find ourselves, Lord, may we, may we at least, Lord, take a bigger look than in the moment that we find ourselves in. Lord, not saying that's easy at all. But God, to, to let you meet us where we are and show us a path forward. So God, today as we go to communion, maybe there are those that can't even take communion because they're so into it, Lord. Maybe, maybe today's a day of just sitting and being prayed over, loved on, nurtured, life spoken into. Maybe... Maybe today's a day of faith and salvation for some, Lord. Whatever those needs are, God, would you speak into our hearts and our lives? And Lord, as we come back after communion and just worship you, Lord, may we see ourselves in our mat, knowing that you are the one that is the arbiter of life and death. And God, give us the wisdom and the maturity to see you for who you really are and not as we thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen.